everyone, and welcome back to The Apex, a weekly conversation with the titans and tastemakers of the automotive world. If you're a car enthusiast, then the name Aston Martin will need no introduction. And if you're serious about your Aston Martins, then you'll probably be familiar with our guest this week, Nicholas Mee of Nicholas Mee & Company. As established Aston Martin specialist and dealer for over 25 years, Nick is one of the leading names in the space and, with the help of his expert team, provides everything from regular maintenance to full restorations of these wonderful cars, not to mention a constantly replenished stock of fine examples for sale, both classic and modern. Voted Specialist of the Year at the 2019 Historic Motoring Awards, the business has recently moved to the historic Hatfield Park Estate and continues to be a reference point for Aston Martin enthusiasts. Nick, thanks very much for joining us today. Hector, it's uh, my pleasure. Thank you very much. And uh, thank you for inviting me uh, to be on the Apex because um, I've seen one or two or heard one or two of these and uh, uh, and I think they're wonderful and I, I fully support what you're doing. So thank you. <laughs> Excellent. So to begin, I wanted to ask, where did your interest in cars come from? And what was the first proper car that you owned? Uh, okay. Uh, so interesting cars. Of course, I have to go back a long way to, uh, to, to, to bring that one up. But it's probably, you know, as a young lad, I was one of those uh, other annoying lads that used to sit in the back of my parents' car naming every car that was coming the other way and modeled etc don't ask me uh, there is uh, funnily enough a bit of a family connection to all of this uh, in so much as my great-grandfather who uh, apprenticed in london as uh, what they used to call a wheelwright and coachmaker um, actually uh, finished his apprenticeship and uh, moved up to hatfield literally two miles from where i'm talking to you now mm-hmm. And uh, he started a business uh, in Hatfield as a wheelwright and coachmaker and used to look after the coaches and uh, make wheels for uh, Lord Salisbury of the time, who's the uh, 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 biggest landowner in the area. Um, and that progressed, funnily enough, through the evolution of the advent of the motor car uh, to Gray's Garages, which was in existence until the 1980s. But... Uh, yeah, he, he went through all of uh, that dawn of motoring, really, mm. becoming an AA and RAC agent and then a Morris and Austin dealership and so on. Um, so if, the, if you're looking for, for anything that's in the blood, it probably comes from my mother's side and my great-grandfather. Mm-hmm. Um, but the reality is that uh, since I can ever remember, cars have fascinated me. And, um, yeah, I was a bit of a swat as a child. And uh, and then later in life, got uh, you know when when I got to the stage when I could actually uh, even think about driving, I used to drive cars highly illegally uh, on the road <laughs> as a as a young lad, um, and uh, they've just fascinated me ever since, and drew me um, away from further education um, after leaving school at uh, sixteen or seventeen, whatever it was. Mm-hmm. I had. Uh, no desire to uh, continue uh, education. So it wasn't something I enjoyed, and um, uh, yeah, started in in uh, in the motor trade as a fitter's mate uh, for an organisation called Hendley's uh, mm-hmm. back in the late sixties. Wow! And and do you remember what the first motor car you owned the, of your own was? And um, happy memories or yeah it's interesting actually i was trying to work this one out because uh it's quite I, it, I used to go through a succession of cars with great rapidity um 
The first one, <laughs> I think, actually was a minivan. Uh, minivans used to be a lot of fun when you were uh, 17 mm. uh, because, uh, you know, you could be a bit reckless in them and, um, and they were quite interesting and cheap. <laughs> I think you've got something in common with David Gandhi in this instance, who I think also went through quite a few, uh, let's say, lower performance uh, cars in his youth, at trimming well, edges and so on. If you go back to the day, actually, um, you know, there, were, there was more than one that I drove till they broke. And then, you know, totally irresponsibly, you just leave it on the side of the road <laughs> because they cost, you know, like eight quid or 10 quid or something at the time. It was a joke. The, um, the although it felt like a lot of money at the time. <laughs> so uh, moving on to your career, you began to work at Aston Martin in the 1970s, I believe. Um, yeah. For the benefit of our younger listeners, could you tell us what that period was like, what the car enthusiast community was like, and what the car market was like at the time? Uh, well, yeah, okay. Uh, pretty interesting, actually. So I joined Aston in uh, March 1976 uh, after a, a period of time um, with HR Owen for about 18 months before that. And uh, Aston Martin had three months three months previously, I think it was January 1976, come out of administration. Um, mm -hmm. The company had stopped producing cars in 1974. Um, it was quite a splash at the time. Uh, they had applied, the company had applied to the then trade and industry secretary in uh, in 74 for grants to keep the business going. Mm -hmm. um, those of you, uh, may, some of you may know, uh, it was no surprise it wasn't forthcoming as the trade and industry secretary was Anthony Wedgwood Ben, uh, slightly, slightly left of left, if I can put it that way. <laughs> um, anyway, so I joined Aston Martin in 76 and really um, knew very little about the brand, but I just knew that it was special and British and I knew that they had doubled my salary. So uh, <laughs> that was worth doing. And, it, and frankly, at the time, uh, I started, it was, uh, we had a, a showrooms on the side of, uh, on Sloan Street, on the corner of Sloan Street and Hans Crescent. And, uh, and at the time I was living in Knightsbridge, so it was very convenient, if I can put it to you that way as well. Mm -hmm. But it was a massive learning curve because um, Aston Martin owners and folks and, and the community are a fairly knowledgeable bunch and they're very mm -hmm. passionate about their subject. And as a young lad of, I don't know, whatever I was, 24 or something like that, Starting at Aston Martin, um, I very quickly found that, that that most people, customers included, knew more about the cars than I did. So mm. I had to learn pretty quickly. Um, the environment, though, was interesting because uh, in the late seventies, we had a succession of uh, of uh, socialist governments, and we had quite high taxation, and um, you know there was the legacy of the disputes in the 70s with three-day weeks and mm -hmm. Coleman's coal strikes and so on and so forth. So it was a difficult environment. And, of course, starting uh, uh, at that time, um, trying to sell what was really already a dated product um, mm. for a company that, that had last been in the newspapers because they'd gone out of business. Mm. Um, but with, you know, some level of tenacity, um, uh, we started uh, selling motor cars. In fact, the first cars we sold 
were completed in 1976, but they'd, they'd actually sat on the line for two years. Mm. Um, so they had to be finished and then and then sold, and then eventually the product uh, got better and better. But um, yeah, it, it, you know, it was a tough gig, um, but uh, an enjoyable one because of the people that I was working with, mm. and uh, because of the customers uh, uh, who I was meeting, who are regardless of them being a bit more knowledgeable on the product than me in those days, quite good fun to be around. Mm. Yeah, it must have it must have been quite quite an experience. When I, you, were... I, you asked me though about what was the collector car scene at the time. I think it's probably best if I say to you that the, the collector car scene at that time was nowhere near the size that it is today. We were talking in those days about you know, and collector enthusiasts mm. tended to be. Uh, a, a very sm- small minority. People bought cars, ran them for three, four, five, six, seven, eight years, and then they just kind of binned them or, you know, get, mm. got, flogged them or got whatever they could for them. Um, people weren't buying cars and restoring them. Mm. And there wasn't an industry. A restoration uh, done in those days would mm. have been done by a bloke, uh, you know, in his garage on the side mm. of the house in a set of overalls buying whatever parts he could get in the main. And uh, the the classic car industry didn't really um, didn't really kick off until you got way into the eighties, uh, mm. not with any magnitude anyway. That's very interesting. Um, and speaking of the the people you worked with, I know you worked with um, Victor Gauntlet at various points uh, in your career. Um, obviously, a huge influence on Aston Martin. Could you tell us about him and and the kind of influence he had on you? Uh, and the company and what sort of environment he created, <laughs> what it was like working with him. Yeah, well, Victor, um, larger-than-life character and a great man um, who, who ultimately became a great mentor to me and a great friend, mm-hmm. um, and uh, very sad, uh, his passing. Um, I first met Victor uh, when he called into the Sloan Street showrooms one day uh, where I had a Daytona for sale, and um, we over the course of the day, eventually, uh, negotiated the deal, and he bought that from me, a, a particularly fine car it was too. And um, he, uh, he he thereafter became um, quite a good client, actually, for a couple of years um, until the first time, that was for non-Ferrari cars that we used to sell occasionally, mm-hmm. uh, non-Aston cars. So. And... Um, one day I was trying to sell him an Aston. I went down to, uh, to, to his offices in Farnham and um, he was highly critical of the car. Um, uh, but we, we managed to get uh, get a deal done. And, uh, and then fairly promptly afterwards, I found out he had been in conversation uh, with Alan Curtis, and, and uh, who was one of the four uh, people who had invested in the company up until that time, and, uh, and got involved in business. And I was delighted uh, because Victor was a guy um, who you could do business with. He was a guy mm. that didn't sit on the fence. You knew where you were with him. He didn't suffer fools gladly. Um, and if you did your job and you were courteous and uh, got on with things and had a strategy and, and uh, so on, uh, he was very supportive and uh, uh, the man himself, uh, when I say I was a mentor, I, I kind of, in working with him, used to follow his thought process and the way he worked. Mm-hmm. And um, 
and you learn. And I learned a great deal from Victor. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I read somewhere that he was also the person who managed to negotiate the the James Bond connection um, <laughs> with Aston. Yeah. Yeah, well, that was, where are we now? Some 1984, I think yeah, it was. a bit later, yeah. Um, yeah, th- there was, um, Eon Productions were going to make another Bond film, and uh, they wanted to use an Aston. And th- it started uh, off with um, the loan of, of actually a car that was part of our used car stock. Um, LAUGHTER um, which uh, which it, it, it spiraled actually in so much as they then wanted to have three more. It was a convertible. They wanted to have three more coupes that they could uh, yeah. sling around and so on. So three um, very secondhand cars were purchased <laughs> and uh, blown over in Cumberland Grey and yeah. and the interiors. I think the guys just opened the doors and blasted black paint everywhere. Um, they were very crude, but they were very effective. And uh, yeah, mm. funnily enough, out of that though. Um, Victor was offered a role in the film, uh, which was kind of interesting. He turned it down, uh, but they wanted him to be the, uh, you know, one of the Russian generals or something. That's quite <laughs> which, incredible. Uh, you know, at the time, um, he was a busy guy. That was a man who used to be at the office in Newport Pagnell at six thirty-seven in the morning, mm-hmm. and, uh, and very often would uh, conduct his business for the day and then come down to London and. Uh, drop into the showrooms later in the afternoon and, and uh, carry out more meetings. So, yeah, he, there's no way. I, I, I can't imagine he would have had the time to hang around mm. on a film set playing at a Russian colonel. I, ju- I just love the idea that James Bond, you know, approved use Aston Martins if it's good enough for him. It's good, good <laughs> enough for anyone. <laughs> well, so, it's, it's a bit of mythology busting, actually, because yeah. it's always thought of as uh, that particular car, the convertible was Victor's, but... Mm. In fact, it wasn't. It, it really doesn't matter. It was a fine. It was a great car, and uh, it set the tone, and it did a lot of good for Aston Martin at the time. It's very interesting indeed. Um, and just to talk about the cars of the era, and maybe uh, clear up a few rumours uh, we've heard over the years. So, first question is: Is it true that the uh, love them, hate them, seventy six wedge Lagondas uh, were the saviour, as it's said, of Aston Martin at the time? And it, uh, is it also true that those digital dashboards that they had, which were kind of a pioneering development, are actually incredibly difficult to repair now? Uh, okay, yes to both. Um, the Lagonda uh, is very interesting because it's much derived, and yes, it's a Marmite car. Um, uh, I remember being on the show stand in Earl's Court when it was announced. People mm-hmm. queued to order that car. It was on the front page of the Telegraph and the Times and, and various publications of the day. It was big news. Mm. And, uh, and it was big news because it was dramatic looking and the use of electronics. So Aston were really a bit um, sort of, they had to continue with this electronic route, even mm. though it was a very problematic thing. Um, in answer to the first question, though, uh, the order bank for the Lagonda was massive. And the car was late and people hung in there waiting for it. Um, and uh, yes, it was a big export car to the Far East, the Middle East and the United States and uh, uh, it, brought in money, which, mm. which the V8s in the day weren't. And don't forget, um, you know, in those days, there wasn't a convertible V8, which is what the United States market mm. wanted. Or I mean, they don't buy coupes, they like convertibles. That was always the thing. Mm. And um, so, yeah, without Lagonda, I can categorically tell you Aston Martin would not have passed 1981. 
without uh, folding again because it was the money spinner. And of course, in 1981, the the, the range uh, by then was the V8, mm-hmm. the Vantage, and the uh, and the Volante. Um, but it was an old car. Mm. It uh, you know it was not new cutting edge technology. It was it was showing its age, mm. and it wasn't. It was later in the eighties that it became retrospectively a fashionable car again. Um, but in answer to the electronics, yes, they are notoriously difficult to fix, and the problem uh, isn't so much the understanding of it. It's just actually the componentry, mm. and this is a concern for. Uh, electronics in cars generally is as the technology moves on a pace um, uh, the manufacturers of the chips and bits and pieces that go into making electronic devices uh, no longer make those mm. chips and bits and pieces because there's no need for them anymore um, it's it, it's uh, it's becoming a bit of an issue actually as, mm. as, uh, as, as the classic car world moves on and we get more involved in some of the more modern cars mm. is finding the electronic items to make them work or actually repairing electronic items to to make them work it's yeah it must take quite a difficult. talented technician as well to, to to dig through that stuff and know which parts will yeah 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 it's yeah. um you know it, it, it and again it's one of those things where repairs to these dashboards and touch sensitive stuff very often were carried out by a specialist mm-hmm. in inverted commas which is normally a one or two man band in a little workshop somewhere that you'd send the item off to and get him to fix it and, and it would come back. Mm. Uh, but of course, these guys, you know, they move on and, and they pass away and, and knowledge <laughs> goes, we've got a problem. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's interesting. And, and the other question I had, it was about the 1990s era of V8s and Virages. They seem to be coming back into popularity now. And I know that you've sold some very special. Uh, iterations of them, including the V550, the V600, mm. the Vantage Le Mans car. What's your take on that era of Aston Martin? And which iterations are, in your opinion, the the ones to have? So the um, the the what you might call the Virage era, um, cars really from 1990 onwards. Um, early Virages were perhaps, well, in fact, definitely underdeveloped, and uh, uh, I think that's generally accepted. Uh, around the place but uh, at the end of the day they do work um, uh, in the main and they're quite comfortable and they are uh, have been built very small numbers and they're a coach built car they're very uh, accessible from a financial point of view Mm -hmm. uh, to collectors Uh, but you do have to be very careful with them that you're not buying something that's going to cost you a lot of money to uh, to uh, keep on the road Mm. the later cars though and, and by that I mean Things like the supercharged Vantage and the V8 coupes and the convertibles that came um, are a much better car than the early Virage. They mm. uh, benefited from a great deal of development and money actually being thrown at them uh, by the then owners of Aston Martin, the Ford Motor Company, uh, who were pretty pathological about improving quality of those cars. And um, so th- they're quite exciting cars. They're they're kind of out of their time, if I can put it that way, because uh, you know it was a formula that, that goes back to Victor's days. In fact, I was part of a team that signed off on the supercharged Vantage in mm-hmm. 1991 before I left Aston Martin, and that car was always to uh, to Victor uh, a spiritual uh, successor to 
his favorite car of all time, which was a blower Bentley. Mm. Uh, and it's the same sort of philosophy, if you like. Um, take a, If you want to make a car go faster, take it and strap on a couple of great big superchargers and, and put some fat tires on it and off you go. A bit like Bentley or, or a bit like that happened with Bentleys and the supercharged, as opposed to uh, going down the sort of more Bugatti-esque type route of uh, making it smaller and lighter to make it mm. go faster. It was Victor's mm. way. And um, they're slightly irrelevant to the day, but that's part of their charm. They exist, and they're really rather magnificent cars. So mm. A very comfortable place to sit, great on, uh, on long journeys, very powerful. You do get a sense of being sort of king of the road in a way, which is, um, which is part of what uh, that car is all about. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to ask as well, um, you obviously in the course of your business, you see a lot of customers of, of various stripes. Is there a difference in taste and attitude between what well, you might say older Aston Martin collectors and a younger generation who, you know, of course weren't around back in, back in the days of the, the, the nineties? <laughs> yeah, I think that, well, there is actually, um, I mean, across the board, uh, collectors these days, do have extraordinarily high expectations of mm. quality, uh, which can be very difficult to meet because, after all, a car, um, you know, it's born one day, it's brand new, and then it goes out in the field and it gets wet and it's dry and it's damp and it's and it's hot and it's cold. I mean, it, you know, it's a pretty hostile environment that mm. cars live in. And uh, so that's, that's a difficult one, particularly for what we term the new era collector and, and mm. for us in our world the new era collector is someone who's buying cars that were gaiden built cars mm. so on the vh uh, 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 chassis architecture and there is a number of cars in the various different models that have been built that are special editions mm. whether they're ultimates or carbon editions or ub20s or bond editions or whatever mm. and these are quite interesting cars uh, two collectors, and, and frankly, they the, the new era collector can put together, you know, three or four uh, of those types of cars in the main for the price of a DB4 mm. or DB6, and so you can see where the interest lies. Mm. Uh, but th- those guys, have, they they really just want perfection, and that uh, is something that we try to provide for them. Mm. Um, and we do try and keep a stock of those interesting cars rather than run of the mill. Um, not always possible, but we try. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the on what you might call the the oldest the older cars, mm-hmm. let's say Newport Pagnell built cars. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think in the main that, that uh, most people, when they approach these, they do understand that they were a very limited production car hand built they're all mm. a bit different um and to some degree on on a scale of budget um that uh that the new era car far exceeds mm. so they're, they're they're a little more willing to accept that uh, they may not be buying perfection mm. um but uh yes it, it's a slightly different world it's a different buyer as well frankly mm. do you, do you ever um, see people trying to dip their toes one way or the other um, I'd imagine there's a bit of kind of customer education you have to do if you're, you know, if, if you're used to the new era of Aston Martin, then you think, you know what, I, I'd quite fancy one of the older ones. Although, yeah, well, a lot of people do have a, a broad selection. You know, they they go, well, I'm, I'm, you know, yeah, 
dip my toe in the water and I've got a new era car and mm. I really aspire to having a DB6 or a DB5 mm. or maybe a V8 Vantage. Um, it's a dangerous game to just sort of pigeonhole people into one particular era of car. Um, and uh, uh, we have several clients who have a broad spectrum uh, spanning all the ages. But mm. um, yeah, it, 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 if you just if you do try and delineate it though, yeah, the new era collector is a younger guy. Um, the cars are less expensive, so it's it's uh, no surprise. Mm -hmm. And they're probably, you know, at the beginning of that journey of collecting motor cars, whereas people that are buying into, you know, uh, uh, four hundred thousand pound DB fours or mm. or uh, V eight Vantages at three hundred and fifty thousand or whatever, um, is it's more serious money. Or if you get up to DB5s and 4GTs mm. or, or any of the convertibles. Um, you're probably dealing with a guy who's a bit more seasoned, mm. um, uh, going to be, to some degree, more understanding because they are, how can I put it, a little more grounded mm. and have had experience with older cars in the past and know what to look for um, and uh, are going to be more appreciative of a good car with good history mm. and no question marks. Nobody wants to... Nobody wants to have a, uh, you know, an old uh, DB or whatever, and have to explain what it is to people. Mm, they just want mm. it to to say what it is, and for it to have a clean bill of health and a good history. Mm. Um, so I, th I think this is kind of answering another question I had, which is, what should people who are taking their first steps into that classic world of proper collectors, Aston Martins, what should they be mindful of? I wouldn't I wouldn't say wary of, just um, mindful. Um, this is going to sell a bit like a, a, a sound a bit like a sell line, but it, mm -hmm. it is just completely true. Um, what what they should not be wary of is buying the best they can, and don't be afraid to spend the extra money to get the best quality, mm -hmm. because it has been proven time and time and time again that is the cheapest form of classic car ownership. Mm. Um, you know, we, we are constantly battling uh, people who, who approach the subject and they become overnight experts and, uh, and they, they start thinking about getting a, an old motor car, uh, a collector's car, and they look at prices and they see that they, there's a, maybe a 25% spread on pricing. Mm -hmm. And they're naturally drawn to try to find something that's at the lower end of the price scale. Mm. Um, which is understandable, but what they don't understand always is that they're going to spend that difference in bringing it up to a good standard, mm. but then it's still got the poor history or it's still got the high mileage. Mm. So my only recommendation, and I know it's been said before, uh, to any would-be collector is buy the very best you can and don't be afraid to spend that little bit extra to get the right car in the first place, it mm. is the most economic route. That's that's very very wise wise words there. Um, and taking a step back, uh, talking about Nicholas Me and Company, the business, it's recently moved to the Hatfield House Estate in Hertfordshire mm. after being based in West London. Um, what prompted that move, and what does the new site give you that London couldn't? <laughs> Uh, I'm sure for car owners, you, I you, mean, we've you, all got you, an opinion. You're, like, you're liking your big subjects here. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, uh, right, London. 
I, uh, you know, have always, up until we moved up here, been in favour of London as a mm. base. Uh, always mindful that uh, going back to the 1980s and 90s, uh, Jack Barclays used to sell, or Bentley or Rolls Royce used to sell over 60% of the UK destined product through Jack Barclays mm. in Barclays Square. Oh, People wow. in those days from, from uh, you know, Newcastle, Manchester, Birmingham, wherever leads, if they wanted to buy a new Rolls or Bentley or Aston, would come to London and they'd make a weekend of it and, mm -hmm. and stay at the Connaught and, and go and see a show and so on and so forth. Um, but London's changed. And actually, the attitude to London has changed. Um, people from outside London actually no longer um, uh, aspire to want to go to London because <laughs> actually it's a fuss and there's cameras and there's parking charges and there's mm. fines for this and fines for that. So it's become quite a difficult um, uh, thing. And also the environment is so busy and it's so crowded. Uh, we... We got to a point with um, with the business in um, uh, in the well, when was it now about fourteen fifteen where despite having two locations one which was dedicated workshop uh, and despite and the, the showrooms that we had uh, in the Goldhawk Road uh, we were just bulging with cars and you can't mm. leave them on the street in London and uh, and you can't, it's just you're constantly hemmed in mm, mm. we. We were faced with a situation, one of the buildings that, that we owned, um, we'd sold, which helped uh, expand the business in 2010 and 11, um, and taken a lease back on that. And that was now coming up, and the new owners of the building wanted to develop it. So we had to do something about one of our uh, premises. And we could have uh, you know, opened up workshops in Park Royal or something like that, but we'd still be in a, an environment that was bit hostile and beholden to institutional mm. landlords and not have uh, any outside space or space for additional parking. Someone said to, uh, uh, to me many years ago, interesting this, um, he was a jeweler. He said, you know, if you're in the jewellery business and you want to double the size of your business, you just buy another safe. Mm. Well, in the car business, if, uh, if you want to expand your business, You've got, you've got to have some space. Yeah. So we, we did a big deep dive about uh, how to solve this problem and uh, we got offered uh, the opportunity to do something up here in uh, Essendon, just outside Hatfield, mm -hmm. um, which was quite special in so much as it's a, an old 250-year-old farmstead um, that was dilapidated and could have been uh, developed for mixed use. But we took the whole site and... Uh, a lot of money was spent uh, uh, developing it for specific needs of workshops and showroom. Mm -hmm. um, it's two acres approximately, and it's uh, and it's a massive benefit uh, to us. The, the the probably one way I can uh, uh, quantify this, and I've said it to many people, within a week of moving here, it was evident we've done the right thing. Mm. Um, people in London but, but let's say we're I'm in London the mm. phone goes oh Nick I can see uh, you've got this V8 or DV6 for sale it's quite nice like to come and see it where are you based oh we're in London so ah okay uh, I'll just uh, give that a moment's thought and get back to you because mm. it's London that's the first barrier and uh, if they were if they were coming to town uh, they'd come and see us but they'd probably be 
uh, or would have planned to do two or three things on the day. Visit the coach mm-hmm. manager, mm-hmm. go and see their lawyer, talk to their wife <laughs> at Harrods, whatever else. Yeah. And, of course, you never get from A to B in London in 20 minutes. So it's always at arrived. least 45, yeah, isn't it? They'd, they'd <laughs> arrive next late. Door. Yeah, and uh, and frazzled, and you yeah. and you'd have a forty-five minute window to show them a half a million pound motor car, yeah. and try and get a decision out of them, um, which is tricky, especially mm. when they're saying, "Well, can I just drive the car?" Yes, of course you can, but it's twenty mile an hour speed limits, and it's speed bumps, and there's bus lane cameras, and Uber mm. drivers, and the cargo delivery vans, and so on. Mm. When we when we moved up here and we started receiving visitors in May 18, uh, what, we, what we were actually looking at our watches after two hours, thinking, when, are we, when can we get on with the rest of our day? <laughs> and, and it's because we are the destination. Yeah. Um, and what we've developed here is a destination where there's plenty for people to see and we like to show people around. Mm-hmm. We like people to arrive and we like to sit them down and have a cup of coffee and calm down and, and after their journey. And um, and show them around, show them what we do, show them some cars, have good conversation, and then yeah, if we want to go out in the car, uh, we open the gates, and guess what? We're on some lovely roads. Mm. So uh, so that was good from the sales point of view, but also from the guys in uh, in workshops point of view, because in London, say we've just done a suspension rebuild on a car, uh, technicians got to get in that car and to road test it properly. He's got to go out of London. Mm. So he's in it for two hours to get check this thing out properly. Um, and frankly, you know, how many of our clients want to spend two hours labor, technician's labor for them driving yeah. there? You know, it just it it just doesn't work in London yeah. anymore. And frankly, in five minutes with these, particularly these older cars, if you if you drive one out of the showroom, you're in for a charge every day, according to yeah. You know this this uh, uh, zone that's coming in from yeah. our friend Sadiq Khan. Yeah. So uh, it doesn't make sense being in London anymore. This is a much nicer environment, and we found that uh, 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 visitors and clients that come here enjoy. We also can do events, hmm. and uh, this is something that I've seen um, for a long time as as an important issue. And to put that into context. Um, uh, to some degree, certainly from the sales side here, I've always said to the guys, "Look, we are—we're. If you want to use chess as an analogy, we're in the business of selling the chess pieces, and uh, the people that buy them, they need a chessboard to go and play on. Mm. And mm. so we encourage, and we we have here during the course of any one year, three or four events for our own uh, event side, which is we we gave it a title, ten to two. It's a Saturday." Uh, thing people come along and uh, you know have some sausage rolls and coffees and kick tires and meet other like-minded people and so on we do uh, regular events uh, with Aston known as club members from mm-hmm. the area and we've had groups of people from piston heads and supercar driver and so on when you've got the space that we have uh, you can do that and uh, and people will travel because uh, it, it it's not London if we were mm-hmm. saying to people uh, supercar driver, for instance, would you like to bring 30 of your people down for a Saturday and we can go through the workshops and this, that, and the other? Oh, yeah, love to, but where are you? London. Uh, no, thanks. Yeah. So yeah. this is the great thing. We've got space here, lots of parking, sheep in the field next door, and um, 
people enjoy coming here and we enjoy having them here it's, it's not all about a hard sell it's all actually yeah. about a community and, and we like to embrace the community and be part of it and uh, participate in it it's that community aspect i think is really interesting at least all the aston owners i've ever known uh, can't get enough of of these events we meet up with people as you said coffee and a bacon roll and it's just a lovely morning or, or afternoon yeah, uh, and in a relaxed way, and you know, those sorts of uh, free form and open conversations can result in business sometimes. But <laughs> as I say, it, it, that's not really what it's all about. It is a community that we operate in, and uh, and you know, to be honest, most Aston owners are quite pleasant folks as well, mm. so we enjoy it. Mm. So Nick, we're, we're coming up on time, so I've just got some quick fire questions mm. uh, left for the end. Um, the first one is. What's your greatest driving experience? Yes, difficult one, that one. Uh, I think we've probably all got driving experiences that we've uh, memories and memorable mm -hmm. cars that we've driven, and mine include, you know, two seven RSs and Daytonas and Stratoses and, mm -hmm. and things like that from, from the 80s. Um, and uh, I've had some fantastic drives across Europe in different Astons, several trips down to Le Mans. To actually say what is your greatest drive? Very difficult, <laughs> um, uh, uh, but uh, but you know certain ones that stick out in my mind are trips to Le Mans. Mm. Um, probably one of the better ones was about three or four years ago, where uh, uh, we had um, I don't know, was it? I think I was driving a DB9 and three or four guys in vanquishes, and we were all heading down to Le Mans, mm. and we decided uh, as we entered France to put into the Google Maps. No auto routes, no tolls, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. and mm -hmm. it gave us a route that was entirely cross country, mm. and uh, of course there was no one on it, and we just went hell for leather, really irresponsibly. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it was a great drive. Uh, that's a more more recent one, uh, yeah, but yeah. yeah, lots of drives to, down to the south of France in cars. I, I don't say, have yeah. one particular. Lots of track events and so on, but. Uh, it's difficult to pinpoint one. It's unfair. It's the magic of the sat-navs now where, you know, you end up in, in some bit of rural France. You're the only car for miles and the road is great and you just, you know, you can have fun. It's uh, Yeah, I'd, I'd recommend doing well. that yeah, to anybody. Set the nav. No yeah, auto routes, absolutely. no toll roads. It takes you through all these little villages and uh, and these wonderful French roads with nobody on them absolutely. and, uh, and no, no uh, speed guns. So, so second quick fire question is what is your favorite car mark other than aston martin uh well i've had a succession of, of uh, mercedes-benz but mm. but that that's not because they're the most exciting car it's just that actually i've always had a great deal of respect for their engineering mm. skills and, and the cars that they produced particularly mm. uh in the 80s yeah. um you know several cosworths and, and e500s and that sort of stuff yeah. so i have a great deal of respect for mercedes um, but if and, we're talking about uh, fun, what would your what would your pick be? Most fun car. <laughs> well, it gets very tricky. This, I mean, um, probably the most more than fun actually uh, was uh, actually one of the trips I went down to Le Mans. I drove a D-type Jaguar there and back. That was oh God, an extraordinary yeah. uh, uh, experience to do. Uh, yeah. And also a short drive in the original DBR2. That that's fun wow. when you've got you know three hundred odd horsepower in something that weighs eight hundred kilos with reasonable brakes and skinny tires. That is fun. Um, 
if you're asking about a contemporary car that managed to sort of fill that criteria a bit, um, I was invited by Alpine down to Goodwood uh, 18 months ago or so. And I had a great, a tremendous time in those little A110s. I think they're oh, a great little car. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's unfortunate because that's the way sports cars should be going, but it's not mm. the way manufacturers have been going. Um, and it doesn't seem as if they're going to go that way, but mm. I think they're a fantastic little car because yeah. you can you can actually make it dance. I've got a thing about mm. cars that I like to be able to make them dance, and, and with excessive amounts of power and traction control, mm. you can't. Yeah, I think I think Gordon Murray for that reason has bought bought one as well. I think he, he runs an Alpine. Yeah, if I could if I could think of a reason to use it regularly, I'd buy one too. <laughs> I think that's the problem they've, <laughs> they've been facing. But uh, we can talk about that another time. Yeah. Um, so, last quick fire question is: What do you prefer, a patinated classic car or a gleaming, fully restored example? Um, <laughs> from a personal point of view. I quite like something that's got a little bit of use to it, mm -hmm. so long as it's, you know, mechanically strong and safe. Um, and that's quite difficult because uh, a lot of people won't spend money making their car strong and safe without doing the cosmetics as well. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the, there is something about a, you know, a gleaming, fresh, brand newly restored car that's a bit tricky because you are suddenly custodian of some form of perfection. Mm. And uh, if you start using it the way that you might want to use it, as you would and should a sports mm. car, then you are going to start um, devaluing that car to some mm. degree. Mm. Um, but I understand it from the point of view that as, uh, as investments, uh, people are going to want cars in as beautiful condition as possible mm. and to maintain it that way. But that's not the for me personally. That's not the most fun. Most fun is to be able to get in the car and uh, make it dance. I think that's a great answer. So Nick, uh, I think that's all we've got time for today, unfortunately. So that just leaves me to thank you uh, for such a, a fascinating chat, and hopefully we'll be able to visit you guys up at Nicholas Me and Company in the near future. Hector, thank you very much. There is an open invitation whenever you'd like to. So uh, yeah, uh, I can't always guarantee the sheep are going to be in the field. That's all. That, uh, <laughs> Uh, next which is always a pleasure to look at but yeah. Uh, yeah no thank you very much it's been a pleasure and um, I shall look forward to uh, listening to myself I suppose <laughs> <Thank you very laughs> at some <much>. point <laughs> thanks Hector very much cheers bye